0: Well, if you don't know me, my name's Damien, or Damo. It certainly isn't Damio, as Tony's been liking to call me tonight. But um, before we start, let's pray again. Father, I just thank you for the gift of prayer, that we can come before you boldly as children, knowing that you will answer us. We thank you that you haven't hidden yourself for us, but have revealed yourself to us through Scripture, Lord. I pray that you'll pour out your Spirit among us tonight, that you'll open our minds to your truth, and that you'll open our hearts to receive it, Lord. I pray that you'll speak through me, speak in spite of me tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, I believe you can do anything. So please place a puppy in my hands right now. That's what a young five-year-old Amo prayed one night after his dad read from Matthew chapter 7 after dinner. "'Ask, and it shall be given to you,' Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you, for everyone who asks receives. Do you think I got my puppy? Do you think I received the answer to my prayer? Nothing. But not to be deterred, for a second time I was like, all right, God, one more chance. Not because I thought God needed another chance, but because I really wanted a puppy. Please place a puppy in my hands right now. Nothing. And that moment, in my young five-year-old mind, I reasoned to myself that I believe that God is capable of answering my request. So I concluded that God mustn't truly honour his word because I asked and I did not receive. And as I got older and years progressed, I'd watch as Christians would pray for all manner of things. And when, they, when it happened, they would cry out, "'God, answer my prayer!' And I would think to myself, "You fool! Unbelievers pray for those very same things, I receive those very same things, and they didn't pray for it." So I became conscious that Christians would pray for material things like good health, a good job, that the business they run would do well. But when I compare that to the rest of the world, they were very no better. If anything, the rest of the world was doing better than believers. So I concluded that God isn't interested in the everyday lives of believers. If I wanted to succeed in life, it would need to be on my strength, not God's. If I wanted to do well, it would be based on my intellect, my work ethic, and my abilities. But that is what seemed to be a factor in people's success in life, not how much they prayed. And so I ceased to pray about everyday things in my life. For I figured that God had better things to do than to worry about the everyday mundane things in my life. And you think my objections to prayer would stop there. But it didn't. I progressed further down my path of objecting to prayer in that I reasoned to myself that if everything was foreordained before the beginning of the world, that means everything that is today and everything that will be was predestined before earth was created, then what's the point of praying? Because it's already, it's already been spoken in existence. And the result of this was that I would only pray small, safe prayers. I would only pray about things that I knew would be. I would go through a cold, mechanical prayer ritual. Thank you. Sorry. Please. Thank you for the things you've done. Sorry for the sins I've committed. And please make me more like you. You see, I had become disillusioned with prayer. And as I look out at the congregation tonight, it breaks my heart to know that the majority of you are in the same boat that I was in. It breaks my heart to know that the majority of Australian Christians are disillusioned with prayer. That's why our prayer meetings are so empty. It's why we spend so little of our time in personal prayer with God. It's because we don't see the value in prayer. And so we prioritise other things above it. And so if we're to successfully fight the battles of this world, both spiritual battles and just the everyday trials of this life, we need to learn to depend on God in prayer. That we might overcome those battles, just as Joshua overcame the five kings in his battle against them. So as we come to Joshua chapter 10 tonight, we see that the story flows from Joshua chapter 9, where Joshua has been duped by the Gibeonites. And if you were here last week, you might remember that the Gibeonites heard of Israel's conquest in Canaan. And they knew that they couldn't defeat Israel by the sword. So instead, they decided to thwart them through trickery instead. So what they did is they got these old sacks and put them on their donkeys. They put worn-out sandals on their feet and took mouldy bread for provisions. They took nothing new that looked like it hadn't been on a long journey. So that when they arrived at the Israelites' camp, they were able to point to their provisions and go, look, they're worn out from our long journey. We've come from a faraway land upon hearing of the Lord, and so we want to make peace with you. And to Joshua and the leaders of Israel, the answer seemed obvious. I mean... These people came from a faraway land because they heard about how good God is. Of course we'll make a peace treaty with them. They thought the answer to the situation was obvious, so they didn't inquire of the Lord first. You see, they relied on their own strength, and it backfired big time. In the book of Proverbs chapter 3, it says, to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You see, Joshua lent on his own understanding. He didn't acknowledge God in all of his ways. And as a result, he finds himself in a mess. A mess that continues beyond chapter 9 into chapter 10, our passage today. But even in his failing, Joshua shows himself to be a man of character. The Gibeonites have just made Joshua to look like a fool in front of the rest of the world. And because of this, the Israelites, they want to take vengeance on the Gibeonites, but Joshua says no. He's a man of character. In his failure, he seeks to do what is right. He refuses to kill the Gibeonites because he gave him his word. And then in chapter 10, there's this king called Adonai Zedek who hears about the treachery of Gibeon and he fears greatly Because Gibeon was a greater city than his. And he reasons to himself, if Gibeon wasn't able to defeat Israel, neither can I. So what he does is he rallies a coalition of five kings together to wage war on the Gibeonites. So guess what the Gibeonites do? They call on their newfound allies, the Israelites. The situation is getting more and more messy for Joshua. All because he thought he could make a decision in his own strength. All because he didn't inquire of the Lord. But even now, he shows himself to be a man of character. I mean, how tempting would it have been to let the call for help from the Gibeonites to slide by, to let it fall on deaf ears, and to think to himself, "Ah, the Lord is fixing my problem." But no, Joshua is a man of his word. He had made an alliance, and he honors it. He rushes to Gibeon's aid. And there's a lesson in this for us: we need to honor our word. Even when it hurts. Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who, sh- who shall, sh- shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those. Who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. You see, if you want your prayers to be answered, you must seek to walk uprightly, to keep your word to your own hurt, just as Joshua did. For the first verse of the Psalm said that in order to dwell with God, in order to have communion with God, You must seek to be righteous, to walk in repentance and to pursue after Christ, example of perfect uprightness. For God doesn't listen to the prayer of the wicked. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Jeremiah 14. Thus says the Lord concerning his people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. In Proverbs 15 verse 8, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. This is hard, I know. It sounds harsh, but you must understand how bad sin is. God is so perfectly holy that he cannot tolerate sin. For he sees it as what it truly is. If we want to have fellowship with him, if we want him to hear our prayers, we must first be walking in repentance, seeking with all our might to be upright in character, seeking to have a heart after Christ. Christ. Now I want to pause here for a second for a point of clarification, as this is really important. Even though it's true that God doesn't listen to the prayer of the wicked, don't ever let this be a reason not to pray. Don't ever think to yourself that you are too sinful to approach God in prayer, because there is no place that you can go that God's grace doesn't go further still. No matter how sinful you are, God will hear your prayer if you approach him in repentance because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And that is what makes you righteous enough for the Father to hear your prayer. It's those who willingly live in sin and do not repent. Repent means to turn again. It's literally doing a 180, turning away from your sin and seeking after righteousness. If you So if you don't repent and you don't seek to walk uprightly as Christ is upright, that is one and the same as mocking Christ's death and resurrection. And for those who through their actions and unwillingness to repent, those who mock the death of Christ through this, it's those people whose prayers will not be heard. But when we walk in obedience on the basis of what Christ has done, it equips us with a great level of confidence because we know that our prayers are answered. Where we just read from in Psalm 66, it doesn't just stop at saying that if the psalmist had cherished iniquity, God wouldn't have answered his prayer. But it goes on to say that God did listen. The psalmist is in this place of extreme confidence because God answered their prayer as they were following after him. So it's of great benefit to us to know that we are doing what is right because we are able to fight the spiritual battles and trials of this life, knowing that God is fighting for us. So how do we know what we are doing is right? Well, it's through prayerful examining of God's Word. Don't rely on your feelings or what seems right to you. For Jeremiah 17, verse 9, says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You can't know your heart. It's unreliable. So you must rely on your prayerful examination of Scripture. And that's what Matthew 7 is talking about when it says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, knock. And the door will be open to you, for everyone who asks will receive. If you ask through prayer for God to reveal himself to you, he will do it. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, You, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So Joshua's conduct is to illustrate to us how to fight spiritual battles hardships and difficulties that come into our life. His conduct is to show us how to depend on God in prayer and to act in faith. Elizabeth Elliot, a Christian missionary, once said that the will of God is not something that you add to your life. It's a course you choose. You either line yourself up with the Son of God or you capitulate to the principles that govern the rest of the world. So in other words, when you're presented with a decision such as whether or not to take a job, How do you discern whether that is the will of God? Well, the will of God is not something you tack on. It's the guiding force of your life. Every decision that you make should be guided by it. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the question to ask is, will accepting this job offer Bring glory to God and help me enjoy him better. And we have best come to this decision through prayer. Not because God's going to give you an answer in a lightning bolt from heaven. But when we spend time in prayer, it aligns our will with God's. It reveals those dirty corners of our hearts that have capitulated to the principles that govern the rest of the world. Money, power, status. You see, you can't pray to God in all honesty and not have those mixed motives revealed to you. And when you surrender these sinful desires to Him in prayer, then you are equipped to make a decision based on the principles found in Scripture. Will taking this job glorify God or me? So back to Joshua. He's up against a tremendous force, five kings allied against him. He's in a really messy situation. Previously, he's only had to fight one king at a time. Now he's got to fight five. But he does what is right, and he keeps his word. He rushes to his allies' aid. And while he's on his way to help the Gibeonites, God comes to Joshua, and he says, Do not fear, for I have given them into your hands. And there's a few interesting things going on here. Firstly, it's God who initiates contact. Joshua's stuffed up, but God doesn't wait for Joshua to somehow sort himself out and come to God. God comes to him. Isn't it great that we worship a God who doesn't wait for us to sort ourselves out, but he comes to us. The Bible says that while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. He came to us and sorted out our mess. And then we see the first thing that God says to Joshua is, do not fear. It's not a rebuke for getting himself into a mess, but it's words of comfort. You see, God comforts those who seek to follow him. And then God promises to fight for Joshua. We have a God who fights our battles for us. Hallelujah. We worship a God who, even when we stuff up, is gracious. We worship a God who, even when we stuff up, he keeps his promises to us. God had promised Israel that they would inherit the land of Canaan, and he delivers on his promise. He wasn't about to let Israel be destroyed by a coalition of kings. So Joshua, he goes up, and he attacks the kings, and he's actually doing pretty well. But then God joins the battle. And he throws down hailstones from heaven so that more people die at the hand of God than at the hand of Joshua. You see, God is gracious even when we stuff up. He fights for those he loves, no matter the sin, no matter how far a Christian might stray. God fights for you. He's a loving Father. He won't leave you or forsake you, but he will fight for you, that you might be restored to a place of communion with him. And it's based on this graciousness of God in Joshua's failure that Joshua is able to pray a bold prayer. Based on the promise of God that the five kings would be delivered into his hand, Joshua prays, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon at the valley of Adjalon. So God answers his prayer. It says, And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now, that's what you call an effective prayer life. I mean, the implications of it are a lot bigger than a puppy coming into the world, I can tell you that much. I mean, worst case scenario, my mum would have just got me in trouble for having a dog in the house. But this, the implications are massive. Like, imagine a car travelling down the highway at full speed, right? And it comes to a full stop. That's the scenario we're looking at. The world's stopping spinning. Everything would have gone flying in that car. Everything would have gone flying if the world stopped its rotation. And it's for that reason that people object to the literalness of this passage. Some say that, and because of this, some say it's just poetic imagery, or there was an eclipse. However, none of these arguments stand linguistically when we examine the text. The only accurate examination, uh, explanation when we look at the text is that God lengthened the daylight for the length of one day. How this happened, I don't know. Some say that God might have slowed the rotation of the earth, Or others that he tilted the world on its axis. And others still say that the miracle was localised to a refraction of the earth rays, such as the northern lights. But whatever happened, the reality is this. It happened, and it happened in a response to prayer. And no matter what people might object to this miracle, it's only logical that a God who is powerful enough to create the world is powerful enough to lengthen a day. And a God who is powerful enough to lengthen a day is also powerful enough to deal with all the related phenomenon associated with doing so. So we see that Joshua had an effective prayer life. He was in communion with God to such an extent that he was able to pray a bold prayer and know that God would answer it. You see, Joshua knew that prayer was indispensable when fighting the battles of life and therefore it was a priority to him. He didn't make excuses. He didn't say, I'm too busy right now. I mean, if there was ever a time to be too busy for prayer, smack bang in the middle of a war. But no, he made time for prayer because he knew it was indispensable to fighting the battles of life. And this is an interesting thing to note about Joshua's prayer. Notice that he doesn't pray that God would increase the severity of the hailstones and destroy the kings for him. No, instead he prays that God would lengthen the day so that he could finish the battle. And that's because when we're finding the battles of this life, whether it be spiritual battles or just the physical trials of everyday life, we shouldn't just pray that God would deliver us from our troubles and make us comfortable, but instead we should have a willingness to wrestle with the problem that we might grow through it. That God would sanctify us and refine us through the trials. That we would come out of the struggles with a deeper relationship with the Father. That's why Joshua prayed that the day would be lengthened. He wanted to get his hands dirty. He wanted to do the hard work. He just knew he needed God's support in it. So perhaps if you've been praying that God would deliver you from your trials, whatever it might be, perhaps you need to change your prayer to something like this. God, I'll do the job. I'll fight the battle. Just give me the courage and the the time to get through this. And be assured that God will answer that prayer. Because he fights for those he loves. And there is nothing he wants to see more than his children sanctified, to be made more like Christ as they navigate the battles of this life. And so the story of Joshua is not just a story of a man who helped in establishing the nation of Israel, But it's actually to point us to another man who shared the same name as Joshua, Yeshua. That's Jesus, the ultimate Joshua, who went through the greatest battle that anyone has ever faced. He defeated death. And even though he was one with God, Jesus felt the need to pray. Jesus' life was marked by a constant devotion to prayer. And this is coming from the one who could heal the sick, who could turn water to wine. Literally anything he needed or wanted was at his fingertips. Yet he prayed more than any of us. Why? Because the point of prayer is this. It's not to get the physical blessings we might want, but rather the point of prayer is communion with God and to align our will with his that's why when Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He deeply desired not to have to suffer the pain of hell on that cross. But what he desired more than this was to do his Father's will. Such was Christ's devotion to the Father's will, that whoever should believe on him shall not perish but have eternal life, that he willingly suffered the torments of hell for you and I, that we might live. Just as Joshua was willing to get his hands dirty and to do the work so that God's covenant to Israel might be fulfilled, Jesus was willing to give up all his heavenly glory and come down to earth to do the dirty work. That the Father's covenant to all who believe would be fulfilled. Joshua was confident in God, confident because God promised the victory. Sorry, and Jesus was confident because he knew that God would win the battle for our souls, that He would have victory over death. So, if our reason to pray isn't to get, it isn't to receive. Why do we pray? Well, we pray because God is gracious. Even when we stuff up, he's there for us. Just as he was there for Joshua when Joshua stuffed up. And we pray because of his promises. In Isaiah 62 it says, Put the Lord to remembrance of his promises. We don't do this to remind God because he never forgets. But we do this to remind ourselves of God's promises to us because we are so forgetful. We pray because we know that He is faithful to keep His promises. Numbers twenty three verse nineteen says, God is not man that he should lie, or the Son of Man that He should change his mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and He will not fulfil it? God keeps His promises. If only we pray because of God's almighty power as he has the power to fulfill his promises, just as he had the power to deliver the Canaanites into Joshua's hand, and just as he had the power to stop the sun in its tracks. So if your prayers solely consist of, bless me, Lord, give me, Lord, I fear that you have a wrong interpretation of prayer. So allow me to reiterate the purpose of prayer. We pray for communion with God. If God feels distance from you, Try spending an extended prayer session with him. Don't stop praying until you feel a sense of communion with God. Praise him. Thank him for all the reasons that he is worthy of our praise. For instance, Christ's death on the cross, that he might pay the penalty for your sin. Then confess your sin to him. List all the sins that you've committed. For instance, pride, selfishness, anger. And confess your sins of omissions, things that you should have done, but you didn't. For instance, when you let an opportunity to serve someone slide by. Or when you could have shared the gospel with someone, but you didn't. And thank him for all the blessings in your life. You'll be surprised how many there are when you make a habit of listing them. And lament to him. Tell him about your pain and your struggles. Don't lie to God or pretend all is good when it's not. Tell him how you feel because he wants to know. He wants you to lay your heart before him and then lay your requests before him once they've gone through the filter of praise, confession, thankfulness, and lamentation. And you'll soon realize if your requests are in line with God's will or not or if they're in line with the principles of the world, desires for money, power, or status. And you mark my words. If you take time every day to really wrestle with God, there is not a time that you will feel more close to him than in these times. You will realize how much you depend on him for everything and he'll give you peace because you will become convinced that no matter how painful the trials of this world, he is working through your circumstances, fighting the battle for you, that you might become more like Christ. And you will clearly see him answering your requests. For if you pray, Lord, sanctify me, he will sanctify you. If you pray, Lord, make me more like you, he will make you more like him. And if you pray, Lord, use me, he will use you. Sorry, And if you pray that he'll magnify his name through your life, he will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for prayer that we can spend time in fellowship with you through it. Father, my heart is burdened as I know that so many people here tonight are just like me. We don't pray as much as we ought because we don't realize the blessing of prayer And we think that we can navigate life in our own strength. So Father, I pray that you will do a mighty work tonight. That you will work in our hearts here tonight. That we will become a people who seeks after you in prayer, Lord. Draw us near to you tonight, Lord. Sanctify us. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray.